0: You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. the four years that President Trump was in office, California found itself at odds again and again with the White House. So now that President Biden has moved into the Oval Office, how much is gonna change? I'm Keith Menconi, this is KCBS In-Depth, and today in the program, take stock of the many ways that the Trump era reshaped California. It's never been quite this toxic. And then consider some of the ways that the new administration may shake things up once again.
1: Those are big because there's so many dreamers in California.
0: That first voice we just heard was Joe Garofoli. He's the San Francisco Chronicle senior political writer and also the host of the It's All Political podcast. This past week, he wrote for the Chronicle about the impact of the Trump years on the Golden State. He sat down with KCBS recently to share his thoughts. Joe Garofoli, welcome to KCBS In Depth. Thank you so much for having me. So I think it's fair to say that uh, California and the former Trump administration had a quite a tumultuous relationship over the four years that Trump was in office. uh, California responsible for dozens and dozens of uh, lawsuits against the Trump administration. And for his part, uh, Trump, I think, oftentimes was uh, more than happy to take California and use it as a rhetorical device, uh, something to punch against in uh, many of his speeches. Uh, So uh, clearly uh, a lot of friction there, to put it mildly. How does this relationship between the Trump administration and California compare to past relationships between California and past presidents?
2: Well, it's it's never been quite this toxic. Uh, you look back at the previous Republican administration, George W. Bush's. Uh, there was certainly the the anti-war march. The anti-war uh, marches were centered here. The anti-war movement was centered here, and that was uh, there was a lot of hostility towards. Uh, uh, President uh, Bush and certainly Vice President Cheney as well, uh, but that doesn't even begin to compare with the antipathy, the animosity that was shown from California towards President Trump and uh, from Trump, as you said, from Trump towards California. Um, and, but, but part of the, the coming, the, it's certainly coming from the Trump way, uh, California was uh, as an easy foil uh, he would use it as a laugh line. He called Governor Newsom a clown. Uh, he, uh, and, and for California's part, Cal- Newsom pushed back on him, at least publicly. Uh, you know, and, and the resistance movement, uh, when you see groups like Swing Left and Indivisible, uh, they have major outposts here. Tens of thousands of, of members of those organizations were here in California. And they were formed because uh, to push back against President Trump. So it's gone both
0: ways. Right. And that's uh, one of the key points that you wrote about recently in an article uh, for the San Francisco Chronicle, talking about some of the different ways that uh, the Trump administration changed California. Uh, You you were making the point that uh, perhaps surprisingly to some, uh, that was a benefit in some ways to liberal leaning Californians, Democratic Californians. uh, uh, Something of a a shot of adrenaline the Trump (laughs) administration provided to the state.
2: Uh, Absolutely. Uh, I think that uh, you saw uh, voter turn. We saw the voter turnout increase not only this year, record voter turnout, but we saw it increase in 2018. And the the upshot of that is uh, California Democrats. flipped uh, seven Republican House seats in California. Uh, that was, uh, nobody could have predicted that a couple of years earlier. And a lot of that was a lot of grassroots organizing, but also a lot of Californians uh, were, that was their way to uh, take out their frustrations about President Trump on the ballot. He wasn't on the ballot, but they took it out on the, the nearest Republican they could. And and many of those folks were Republic, longtime Republican House members who, who got tossed.
0: Another point that uh, you made in that article is that it has really rearranged the, the deck chairs on uh, the the political landscape of California. <laughs> Next two metaphors right there, uh, changing the uh, political trajectories of Kamala Harris, Katie Porter, Javier Becerra, Alex Padilla, just to name a few. Uh, run us through that. How could Trump have rearranged so many uh, California hopefuls?
2: Yeah, well, let's 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 be real. If, uh, if Hillary Clinton had won in 2016, that uh, uh, Senator, then Senator Harris wouldn't have run for president uh, uh, in, in this past election cycle. And uh, of course, she didn't make it, but she wound up as, as, as Biden's vice president. Um, and then uh, she leaves the Senate and we have Secretary of State. Alex Padilla replacing Harris. And and when he takes office this week, or when he took office this week, uh, he was the first Latino to represent a state that is now 40% Latino. And uh, if uh, you alluded in the beginning to um, uh, California suing, um, President Trump over 100 times, I believe, was 114 by the time that he finally left office.
0: Last count. Yeah.
2: Yeah. The person who uh, was the face of many of those lawsuits was Attorney General Javier Becerra. Certainly increased his national uh, national profile, helped him land a nomination as Biden's Health and Human Services secretary. and then you, see, you mentioned Katie Porter. Uh, she was one of the a wave of, uh, of uh, women candidates who ran for office. Uh, remember, the, the day after President Trump uh, was inaugurated, there was a massive women's march in Washington, D.C. I was there at that. Uh, it was a, a gigantic event. Not only were there women's marches there, but in hundreds of cities around the country. And uh, uh, that helped to uh, uh, jumpstart a number of women to run for office to uh, make their displeasure with Trump and where he was all about known. And one of those people was Katie Porter. She was a law professor, a protege of Elizabeth Warren, and she has become a rising star in the Democratic Party now.
0: Yeah, you uh, touch on a number of other points in your article. Uh, you talk about immigration. We're actually going to have uh, USF uh, per- uh, Professor Bill King on a little bit later in the program to talk about some of those uh, impacts on immigration and what to expect from the Biden administration. Uh, you also talk about the impacts on Silicon Valley. Um, but I, I want to talk about the, uh, the impact on environmental regulations because uh, we kind of mentioned the lawsuits a second ago. A lot of those did center on uh, attempted rollbacks of uh, various environmental regulations. And that has been uh, a, a big fight between California and uh, the Trump administration. Uh, what what were some of the the biggest areas that you think are going to be remembered?
2: Well, seventy roughly about seventy of those lawsuits that the Becerra filed against the administration were, were rollbacks of federal environmental regulations. Um, and and not only that, they were um, there was uh, this administration essentially did not acknowledge climate change, and we feel that. Here, existentially in California, particularly in coastal cities, Uh are you know we we at, at at risk of, of future flooding and such, um, and there was very little done on that. I've talked to to environmental leaders, and they said we we lost a chunk of years on climate action. You can't get that time back that we could have been doing something to prepare for it, to mitigate it in some ways. Uh, we also uh, about wildfires. Now, Newsom has gone out of his way to say that you know whenever he needed. Uh, you know, federal assistance, emergency funding. He, he, he generally got it from Washington. And, you know, for all their back and forth that we talked about, uh, there, they, there was a sort of a behind the scenes, you know, it was a neutral uh, respect level enough to get the federal funding here to, to help out on emergency funding. But, you know, the president was also saying goofy things like, you know, you uh, uh, the uh, California's wildfire problems with it. they need to spend more time like raking the, 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 the forest it uh, involves many years of uh, leaves and broken trees it's like what, what oh, that's
0: if... what we were forgetting whoops
2: yeah 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 it was like uh, it was like what was it, it didn't make any sense and um, but again it was one of those things that that got headlines and and was a distraction but they you know the, at the risk of actual policies that could help mitigate wildfires that could help mitigate climate change. And that wasn't happening. And that was like that was the 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 source of the lost time that we've had over the last four years.
0: Yeah. All right. So that is a little bit of a look back at the last several years and some of the impacts that we've seen on California. Let's look ahead to what may happen next. Uh, we see uh, Democratic ascendancy in two branches of government, two houses, as, as well as the presidency uh, and uh, getting that winning that Senate. I think a, a lot of political watchers weren't really expecting that. How much does that change for California and uh, its ability to roll back some of these uh, policy concerns that uh, I, I think I uh, think many of those in power and many of the more liberal minded folks uh, really didn't like see uh, like to see those changes during the Trump administration.
2: Well, even Governor Newsom has said, you know, this is sort of night and day uh, because, you know, in terms of having friends in Washington. That means a lot. And uh, not only having friends in Washington, you have a, a very good friend uh, in Kamala Harris is the number per- two person there. But you'll also have um, Javier Becerra at Health and Human Her- Services. He's very, you know, it might be a struggle, but he'll be confirmed. Uh, And you also have uh, Jennifer Granholm, the former governor of Michigan, but she has been for the last uh, 10, 12 years, she's been living in Oakland. And she's going to be, you know, she's been nominated to be the Secretary of Energy. Uh, That is going to have a huge impact on California, California being. Uh, A leader in um, sustainable energy. Uh, Granholm was all about sustainable energy. Uh, She knows the research players here. She knows that this is an area where there's going to be a lot of innovation. Uh, So that is going to be very key for for California as well.
0: So given all of that California representation that is uh, going to be in Washington, D.C., should California Democrats be expecting California politics to be taking hold within, you know, the National Democratic Party. Obviously, this is a state that went for Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary. So to the left of uh, even most other Democratic states, uh, I think a lot of liberal leaning Californians would uh, hope for, you know, more progressive policies to be taking hold, taking root in the Democratic Party. Is that what they should be expecting?
2: Oh yeah, I think. I, well, we're not going to. I, I really don't think we're going to see the federal, uh, like Medicare for all and such, uh, or the Green New Deal, be adapted by the by the federal government. There's just the the margins are so narrow there. But you know, many of those policies have already been adapted by California, and California will always have an outsized influence on the Democratic Party. Number one, being the largest state, uh, being uh, uh, predominantly Democratic. And, uh, and basically, you know, what it comes down to in politics, money. And California has long been the ATM of Democratic Party politics. Uh, I, I know that because uh, every time uh, a politician comes through town to uh, raise money, I try and get them on my podcast <laughs> uh, because, because they all have to come here to shake the coin, uh, shake the can for some coins. Um, so that's, what, that's uh, you know, sadly, because of the way our our, our political system is is rigged these days, Uh, money means so much. There's a lot of Democratic money here, a lot of wealthy Democrats, that will be why California continues to have influence in politics.
0: All right. Well, uh, a lot of things changing, but some things uh, absolutely stay in the same, as we just heard. Uh, we have been speaking to Joe Garofoli. He once again is the San Francisco Chronicle's senior political writer, also the host of the It's All Political podcast. Joe Garofoli, thanks so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. We're listening to KCBS In-Depth, our weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond, I'm Keith Menconi. Today on the program, following a sea change in national politics, we're tracing the ripple effects all the way back here to the Golden State. We just got a broad overview of the many policy changes the Biden administration could bring. Up next, we're going to spend the rest of the program zeroing in on just one item on the presidential agenda, immigration reform. It's, of course, an especially impactful issue for California, given that the state is home to the largest population of undocumented immigrants in the country. To help explain what Biden's reform plan could mean, we're going to welcome onto the program now frequent KCBS guest, Bill Hing. He is a professor of law and migration studies at the University of San Francisco, where he directs the Immigration and Deportation Defense Clinic. Welcome to the program, Bill Hing. Thank you very much for the invitation. So just uh, taking a step back to get everybody up to speed on the news of this week, uh, Biden introduced an immigration reform bill on his very first day in office uh, that includes, very noteworthy item, uh, an eight-year path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants. Uh, uh, there's obviously a lot more in the news uh, in the new proposals, but uh, I want to start off with uh, the the very broad question of uh, given how large California's immigrant population is, Hoping you could reflect a little bit on the significance of this reform push for California in particular.
1: Well, I'm telling you, that proposal for legalization or amnesty, as some people will call it, uh, that's going to affect at least uh, a quarter to a third of the total undocumented population of the country. So we're talking perhaps three to five million uh, that may be in California alone. Uh, that proposal has two parts to it. One part is largely for dreamers. Um, many listeners are familiar with them. They're people that came as youngsters with their parents. Um, and they're on a quicker pathway to citizenship. They could actually obtain U.S. citizenship within three years. And then the other parts of the population, like their parents or other adults, theirs is a, 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 an eight-year path to citizenship, as you said. That's right.
0: Right. So uh, big changes in the works. Uh, and I actually want to bring in some of the voices of the folks who uh, may be impacted by this, uh, because there, there is a lot of anticipation and I, I would say also a lot of mixed emotions. That's the impression I actually got when I uh, spoke with some immigrant rights activists that uh, helped organize a rally in San Jose uh, actually on Wednesday they were protesting the plan during that rally. They said they were excited about parts of it. It's just a matter of they have been let down by Democratic administrations before, and they want to make sure that they keep the pressure on.
2: We've been here before. They have promised a lot, uh, but they have done nothing in the last 20 years.
0: That was Gabriel Manrique, an immigrant rights activist based in East San Jose. Uh, He says one concern he has is about who might be left out from Biden's path to citizenship.
2: Also, there's going to be uh, some exclusion on on that proposal. And I have a lot of families that might be excluded from that. And I know a lot of our community members uh, might be excluded from that uh, proposal.
0: Meantime, uh, diving into the politics of all this, uh, he believes that if the Democrats were really serious about getting this passed through Republican opposition, they would dismantle the filibuster.
2: Because uh, if there's a filibuster, you know, like Republicans might have uh, an
0: objection and that's going to make it harder uh, for an immigration reform to pass. So, Professor Hing, there we have uh, a mix of uh, hope, but also a fair amount of skepticism. And uh, I I suppose that that is sort of to be expected, just given how long many of these dreamers have uh, waited for these reforms to come.
1: Well, I definitely share the, the skepticism that 10 Republicans in the Senate are going to step forward to endorse and support the legislation as written Already, uh, there are people that have spoken out against it, uh, most notably, Ted Cruz and Mitch McConnell was not that happy with it. And so, yeah, it's going to, with the filibuster in place, uh, 51 votes is not necessary. You actually need 60 votes to break the filibuster. Uh, uh, But with respect to some of the other comments, I, uh, I, I certainly would not solely blame Democrats for not passing immigration reform. They came very close in uh, 2010 to pass the DREAM Act and they came five votes short in the Senate. Uh, they pa- passed the uh, House under Nancy Pelosi's leadership in 2010, the DREAM Act, but they came five votes short. They got 55 votes instead of 60 in the Senate. And uh, I, do we blame the Democrats for that or we, do we blame the Republicans? I I I think that it's more of a Republican problem, to be honest with you, than a Democratic
0: problem. Speaking once again to uh, Bill Hing, professor of law and migration studies at the University of uh, San Francisco, taking a step uh, back again from the politics of this and just considering the real pressure and real fears that folks have been living with uh, for all these years where this uncertainty has been in place I mean how uh, help, help those uh, help, help folks that have not had to face that understand what this long long period of waiting has meant for the people that it's impacted
1: many of these residents have lived here for decades uh, people who entered as young men and women in their 20s and 30s are now uh, 30, 40 years older. And they have families, uh, the vast majority of the undocumented population comes from what are called mixed families, where they very often have a United States citizen child or two, some of those children have grown up, they've graduated from Cal or San Francisco State, and uh, they're very much a fabric of the community, yet they continue, those without documents continue to live in the shadows, Uh, especially under the Trump administration, there was fear uh, day one of uh, after the uh, election (laughs) in 2016 and then after the inauguration in 2017, uh, there was a big source of fear of deportation. And in fact, there were random acts of arrest by ICE. There were raids that occurred. Uh, Then we read about the family separations at the border and what was happening. So uh, the the population that has worked in the United States for years, the vast, vast majority have never had any criminal problems. Uh, Honestly, they're just trying to put food on the table. They're our neighbors. We see them in restaurants, in the construction industry, uh, in agriculture and and gardening, and uh, yet they're not allowed to be fully part of our community.
0: Yeah, you mentioned some of the changes that the Trump administration brought to uh, the U.S.'s immigration policy. Not all of them uh, were legislative in nature and not all of them are uh, you know, part of Biden's, uh, the legislation that he's putting forward, but uh, it could be addressed in executive action instead. Uh, in particular, I'm thinking about the end for protected status for uh, some immigrants in the country. Uh, help lay out a little bit uh, what that protected status means, uh, what its loss meant and uh, what its restoration could change.
1: Yeah, uh, in fact, there was no immigration legislation passed under the Trump administration. He wanted to eliminate family visas for example, uh but and he wanted money for the border, but he never got anything like that from Congress. He had to kind of manipulate funds. But uh yeah, administratively he sought to end DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, but also this thing called TPS, temporary protected status, uh, that affects in the Bay Area, people from countries like El Salvador, um, across the nation, something like 200,000 Salvadorans alone, uh, who who had this protected status that that were here for more than 20 years. That's when it went into effect. And he sought Trump sought to terminate that. And in the Bay Area,
0: and it's related to uh, unsafe conditions in, in their home country.
1: Exactly. It's people who fled at that time who were fleeing uh, violence as the result of civil war. People that are fleeing El Salvador and Honduras right now are fleeing because of drug and cartel and domestic violence. So it's a different form. But Trump sought to end that TPS status and that in the Bay Area, it would affect at least 20,000 people. Most of them have citizen children that have been born here. And so uh, President Biden has done two things. He's announced that he's going to reinstitute TPS, but those folks will also be put in legislation. It's part of the legislation that he proposed. They would also be put on the fast track to citizenship along with DACA recipients.
0: Wondering if you could help us parse through one of the issues that was raised in uh, the interview with uh, a little bit earlier with the immigrants uh, rights activist. Uh, He was saying that he's worried about some of the folks that may be excluded from uh, this path to citizenship. Uh, So we're talking about an eight year path to citizenship that includes getting a green card after several years and then several years later, uh, having an opportunity to apply for citizenship. Who, Who among the undocumented population would this apply to? How broadly would it apply? What just what, what should we know about this?
1: Well, I think it's pretty broad, OK, um, because it, it's it's anyone who entered uh, before January 1st of this year. So that's that's the cutoff. It's um, it's very generous. I was around for Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986. And it was not as generous. That one you had to have lived here for four years before you could apply. And so this is right now, people who entered before this January, that's pretty generous. The people that are excluded are those who cannot pass criminal or national security background checks and people who uh, have not paid their taxes. And we know um, that you can always pay back taxes and, and that was done back in 1986 and that was fine. There's, there's just not gonna be any getting around some criminal and national security requirements for folks. Uh, and, and yes, there are gonna be some people that are excluded from that. Uh, but I, 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 while I might think that there are some people with a criminal background that should be granted legalization, uh, I, I think that realistically it's gonna be hard to not get legislation Uh, not, not to get legislation passed without criminal and national security
0: bars. Uh, very, very last point that I want to put to you. I mean, given all of the uh, political hurdles that we've been discussing throughout the course of this conversation, and uh, just to bring in one more point from the uh, uh, immigration hawks that are uh, opposed to the Biden proposal, they're also warning that uh, this is not a time to be uh, bringing in more workers into the country. They fear that, you know, during a, uh, a, a recession, having more economic competition in the workforce uh, will hurt American workers. So there is uh, widespread opposition from uh, folks that tend to oppose these sorts of immigration reforms. Now, given that, given uh, all the hurdles that the Biden administration is going to need to go through to make this a reality, uh, there may need to be some compromise. We've listed a lot of different proposals uh, over the course of this conversation. Uh, for you, Professor Hing, what would you say are the the core portions of those uh, proposals that you would want to see maintained through the course of that deliberation and that compromise?
1: Well, I, I I I think that the core part which deals with this broad legalization for ten to twelve million, it should remain. Because we're not, that isn't about bringing new people in. That's about legalizing people here. And the truth is the vast majority of those folks are already working and we've got to bring them out of the shadows. And the other truth, what's relevant to the pandemic, as we've all found out, is many of the undocumented workers are actually essential workers in terms of services. You know, they're the ones that are delivering things. They're the ones that are helping uh health workers and and the elderly and and construction that's that's going on in some parts of the country and so i actually think that uh we should be rewarding these folks uh and it's not going to affect the the labor situation because they're working already i i think that that's got to remain because um and it, it it's like dr fauci let's let's go with the science if we actually looked at the data of what these folks are doing and looked at it fairly and objectively, I think we would all agree that they're actually already contributing to the economy in a vital way. And let's, let's recognize it by granting legalization.
0: All right, a lot to consider and uh, a lot to be debated in the coming months. But we thank you for giving us a, a push off, a nice start into that debate. Uh, we have been speaking once again to Bill Hing. He is a professor of law and migration studies at the University of San Francisco, where he once again directs the Immigration and Deportation Defense Clinic. Uh, professor Hing, thank you so much.
1: Very much. Nice to see you.
0: Thank you all for listening. Remember, you can find past episodes of the program online at the KCBS website or wherever you get your podcasts. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week.